0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a song Justin Trudeau. Trudeau. A Justin Trudeau song. What a, what a song. Oh, once upon a time, a man met a woman, and the woman and the man made love. A child was born, and the angels sang up there in the heavens above. Well, the boy grew tall with political halls, and the time has come. It's true the next prime minister of canada and there really ain't nothing you
1: can do coming to you from the west coast this is politicos today is march 1st 2018 and this is episode 75 politicos is not edge of the seat exciting but we're exceptionally well informed if you haven't already please make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you found us follow us on facebook and twitter where we're at politicos pod and support the show at patreon.com slash politicos start the boom and i'm ian bushfield today we're going to be doing lots of budget stuff we're going to follow up some of the ongoing conversation about the BC budget, which passed today. We're going to look at the federal budget that was announced this week, and we'll run through a few quick takes and do the best of BC Poly as usual. First, of course, we have to thank our premier sponsors, Lindsay Tedds and Blake Hodson for helping make the show possible. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's brand new daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast will receive 25% off subscriptions when you enter the offer code POLITICOAST. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to britishcolumbiatoday.ca.
0: But before we get into our main content this week, uh, we have a bit of an announcement, some housekeeping stuff related to that.
1: Well, you had a bit of an announcement. Yes.
0: I will be running for Vancouver City Council and seeking the NPA nomination.
1: And I'm sure... It- some point we could do maybe next week or the following for on content we'll do a little interview style <laughs> segment maybe on that but you did put up a two minute statement on it i guess on the podcast they can look for that uh and you also have a piece in the Tai. what's that about
0: i wrote a piece basically going over why i think it's time for a change at city hall uh we'll throw a link to that in the show notes and yeah the tie was nice enough to publish it
1: Despite being a little outside of their normal wheelhouse in terms of the content. Yeah, I don't know how many NPA candidates they've ever had a <laughs> statement from. We're still figuring out how to position the podcast in relation to this. We don't want, neither of us want this to be the Alex Scott DeLangeboom podcast as much as it's interesting. And I'm enjoying watching you run. I think it's a great idea for you, even if there are things where I'm like, let's get that mansion tax and socialize <laughs> all the housing. But again, we want our analysis here to be balanced and above reproach we're willing to be partisan but we don't want to be seen as i don't know hyper partisan maybe
0: yeah i I think it's more of a case that you know we have our opinions and we have our political biases but we you know try not to let that overwhelm what we talk about and you know when when you're running for office that just isn't really the case you you got to be much more on message keep hammering the points and that's kind of just how it goes and it you know, we don't want it to bleed over into what we talked about.
1: So we're, we're thinking about options. If you have great ideas for what we should do, we're going to keep talking about British Columbia stuff and federal politics. But if you think we should not talk anything to do with the city of Vancouver, or if you think we should launch a spinoff, or if you think we should just put a disclaimer at the start of every episode from now until the end of October, tweet at us, email us, you know where to find us, leave a comment on our website because you can do that. People have done it twice or on our Facebook page. <laughs> And if you want to wish Scott good luck, where can they find you? Uh,
0: so website, uh, delaneboom.ca, that's D-E-L-A-N-G-E-B-O-O-M mca Also, all the social media, uh, Twitter handles at Scott underscore D-L-B, Facebook, just Scott Delaneboom. And yeah, follow me on those. Uh, we'll put all those links in the show notes. And if you want to get involved, the information's on the website, but uh, right now, the Biggest thing you can do,
1: right, is just get a membership in the NPA to vote in the nominations. Into our first segment, the one guy who didn't like the budget. After last week's show, I felt like all of the press out of the budget was great for the NDP. On Podkeep Our Land, Patrick talked about being in the budget lockup and how all of the NGOs were super excited and all of the unions and everyone was like, pretty stoked and even the liberals criticism was kind of muted it it was the token
0: criticism yeah and
1: some of it was the oh you didn't actually keep your promise which i think we said at the time wasn't that big of a sticking point
0: especially because it was promises the liberals campaigned against
1: but the thing i did see develop over this last week on twitter particularly among i forget whether it was keith baldry rob shaw von palmer one of the one of those guys got into like some twitter rants about how Some of these tax increases on the school assessment, I think it was specifically, on houses over $3 million, that would, you know, unfairly punish grandma who bought her house for $50,000 a while ago, and now it's worth $6 million, and she's going to have to pay thousands of dollars a year, and we're supposed to feel bad for her. Not noting that she can defer her taxes, as Tom Davidoff was pointing out, at essentially a subprime loan. So the government will encourage you to. This provoked a lot of backlash on Twitter. Uh, Justin McElroy wrote a few Twitter like rants back at them. And then CBC said, hey, Justin, why don't you write that into an editorial? And he did. And that went viral. But I think the best part of this entire backlash was this guy, David Thaw, that came out talking about how much money he would personally lose and how bad it would be for him. And it got fantastic when Mike Smith in the province pointed out this is the same guy who 25 years ago made the exact same arguments when Glenn Clark pitched the same policy. Everything old is new again.
0: Yeah, back when that $6 million home was a $370,000 home. So the NDP in
1: 1993 was looking at raising the school taxes on homes assessed over $500,000 and scaling back some of the homeowners grants, something the NDP is also starting to think about talking about now. Thaw was at this rally where he called for Finance Minister Glenn Clark to resign, and I guess that pressure actually worked because the BCNDP caved on it, and Mike Smith describes it as the government folding like a cheap suitcase, canceling the tax and apologizing for it. And Thaw goes back to Point Grey and celebrates to a hero's welcome in the hood. (laughs) And so this guy whose house is now worth, I think, over $6 million is up to the same rhetoric and it just still rings hollow to me and maybe it's just the insensitive millennial but it does feel like kind of a class war thing they've set up or a generation
0: millennials i mean i saw plenty of gen etzers take similar uh tats on twitter and everything else so it's i I think the real divide is probably more between the people who own those six million dollar homes and everyone else who's
1: feeling the pinch of the housing crisis And it is really worth emphasizing, I think, that they don't have to pay this money yet. They can defer it.
0: Until the property is sold.
1: Yeah. And if that's sold when the the estate is closed out, when the person dies, you just clear it out of that. And the point is their house is probably increased in value substantially more than this minor tax amount. And because of the way the interest rates have been set, the province is losing money. The city is losing money. (laughs) on these people to we're still subsidizing mansions essentially well it's vancouver so they're not actually mansions they're just single family homes that happen to be worth six million dollars although this does actually apply to the 15 and 20
0: and 30 million dollar mansions out in northwest point gray
1: so i'm still just not feeling the sympathy the other part of it is those people aren't pitching any solutions to the housing crisis so i'm fine if you want to complain if you want to bitch and moan about a new tiny ink tax increase on your mansion but come up with something else give us an alternative
0: i think the much more salient criticism around this tax was whether or not it applied to rentals because when it was initially phrased in the budget document it was just properties over three million and that avoids a lot of condos because very few condos are over three million in the city but because an apartment buildings assessed as a single property, basically anybody with you know, any significant rental holdings would be paying significant amount of property tax, and then that would of course get largely passed on to the renters or the new renters when they move in because of the rules around adjustments. But, you know, it looked like there was gonna be a fairly significant tax hit to rentals in a time where the rental rate's really low and governments are having a hard time trying to get those rentals built to make up the slack. And a couple days ago, the minister clarified that no, it is not in fact going to apply to it. But you know, that
1: was a lingering
0: question for several days.
1: I guess when you put together a 30 point housing plan in a couple months, you miss something, (laughs) a little typo. And that's why we have a parliamentary process to clear that up. I'm really glad they fixed that. Of course, right? <laughs> that makes no sense to jack up taxes on a apartment building which will get passed right down to those renters. So, good Yeah, and, and these
0: that same building that would have been condos would have got, avoided the tax. So, yeah, it, it made no sense. But it is one of those things that needed to be clarified and I think the NDP took longer than they should have clarifying that.
1: One of the things though that came out is Insights West actually did a poll on this budget pretty quickly and where it sounded like in some of the early commentators, like I mentioned on Twitter and some of the early press, they managed to find the David Thaws and these other homeowners who were very grumpy and upset about this tax increase. But when Insights West polled British Columbians on the budget, most people really liked the budget and specifically on these increased taxes on properties. 77% of British Columbians supported it, including 76% of homeowners and 72% of BC liberal voters. It's just a, across the board support for this. And that was the lowest support of the new home taxes, the speculation tax and the expanding the foreign buyers tax, both at 81%. The increase in the foreign buyers tax at 82% support. It's rare to get that many people on the same page on anything. Most people just looked at it and went, Yeah seems like something we should be at least trying and I think that just speaks to the frustration British Columbians have had at the lack of action on this file for so long that you put something out there they go good I don't even care if it'll work we're trying at least finally but some of the other elements were also widely popular the seniors discount for the BC ferries was 77% support the childcare benefit got 63% support. That rose to 87% support for people with young children. And perhaps the most controversial element was this decision to replace the MSP with the payroll tax, like we talked with Lindsey Tedds last week. But still 61% of British Columbians supported that. That was mostly New Democrats, 77% of their voters and 59% of Greens. But still half of BC liberals were like, yeah, this is fine. And that probably reflects a, maybe it's not the way they would have chosen it. And maybe the liberal arguments about the inefficiency and the negatives of payroll taxes hadn't really trickled down to the voters and that message hadn't gotten out there.
0: It it is a little technical, so I I can definitely understand why, you know, some voters maybe not as aware of what the trade-offs are. I mean, some, probably a bunch think it's still worth the trade-off, because the MSP was not a great system anyway.
1: It's one of the worst taxes out there.
0: Yes, and payroll taxes aren't great, but they're less
1: bad. You don't see them as a employee, you just see that you're...
0: Yes, but, but the downside of taxes is that, uh, you know, the person physically cutting the check isn't necessarily the person bearing the costs.
1: So overall, the budget was pretty popular, but like any situation, the media is very good at finding a couple grumpy people and giving them, I guess, undue amounts of attention this week. That's not to say we shouldn't have criticism of the budget out there. And one person who tried to criticize it was liberal MLA Mike Morris, who went on a radio station, I think in Prince George, and he started talking about this $50 million that the government has set aside for indigenous language preservation. We've talked about this a couple times He thinks this would have been better spent for a couple hundred extra police officers in rural BC and in First Nations communities to help address the sexual violence and domestic abuse that we have in those communities. And he clarified or tried to clarify what he meant in the legislature by saying, here we have people suffering every day from alcohol abuse, domestic violence, sexual abuse, and preserving language is a higher priority than putting that money into extra policing resources From a risk management perspective, I think this really needs to be re-examined. Now, Morris is an ex-cop, and so maybe this is a situation where all he sees are nails and he's a hammer, so going to approach it with just throw more police at it. But I did see a lot of indigenous people and other people working for reconciliation in this province really criticize him for sort of doubling down on the negative stereotypes of First Nations communities. And wanting to just throw more policing at it, when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action do say we need to do things like preserve language and culture as a way to rebuild people's identity and make them you know, feel like they have a purpose, which is a good way to kind of reduce crime and all these other things anyway. Throwing more cops at things hasn't generally solved problems.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's some of the statistics around First Nations and some of the issues he highlighted. Yeah, they're, it's pretty terrible, but this might be a case of sort of kind of get, identifying a problem and just completely missing on a solution, and, and doing so in a very kind of heavy-handed and insensitive way.
1: And $50 million isn't that much, so the re- it's just weird to me that he chose this, like, one pot to want to steal the money from to put into cops and more policing. If Policing's his thing and 50 million dollars is all he wanted like the surplus is bigger than that he could have just said we have some money in the surplus or in contingencies all over the place why don't we put some of that to policing instead he's like actively trying to undermine some of the progressive policies to keep running the same ones
0: yeah i mean there is some money in the surplus and you know if you propose that maybe along with some stuff like you know better treatment for alcohol abuse, that sort of thing. You know, it might be more defensible, but yeah, this just is incredibly insensitive and tone-deaf.
1: I don't know if this is part of a larger problem for the BC Liberals yet, but it's a sort of tone-deafness, or maybe it's just a bozo eruption. But Andrew Wilkinson hasn't really developed a good narrative yet against this budget. The only elements he was really able to pick off on were the payroll tax issue, and that didn't get much traction. And the other option was maybe like, getting the mansion owners in Vancouver outraged, but there's not a lot of sympathy for that camp. So they still seem kind of rudderless. And at this point, I'm wondering if Andrew Wilkinson is just hunkering down for three and a half years until the next election.
0: I I don't think it's gonna be quite that I think it's more cases just the NDP position themselves very well with this last budget. And doesn't leave much room to maneuver for Wilkinson.
1: I guess his hands are somewhat tied by the Clark legacy of doing nothing at the last two years, at least, or even throughout the whole term, just not ending in a very inspiring way. And he's got to put together some alternative, and that doesn't exist yet. So one of the things he has tried to pick up on is this idea of broken promises that the NDP has done. They talked about the $10 a day childcare being Put off into the distance, the $400 renter's rebate not being in there. And I guess along that line, the good news for Andrew Wilkinson then today was that the BC Utilities Commission has decided that BC Hydro will not be getting a 0% rate increase as the BC NDP had promised. And instead, they are going to give us a 3% rate increase on April 1st. The BC NDP is disappointed. Energy Minister Michelle Mongel said that she appreciates the BCUC's rationale. And she says, they're very clear in a nutshell that this is a mess. There's a mess at BC Hydro, it needs to be cleaned up, and I hear that. And Andrew Weaver was happy to see the NDP not meddle in the Independent Utility Commission's decision-making process, but it kind of sucks for the NDP to go, we're going to freeze your rates and then the independent people go, we can't, we're broke. (laughs) If we don't raise rates, again, we can't afford to keep building dams and giving people electricity. I did see in one of the news articles, though, the comparison made that said Vancouver is still one of the more affordable cities in North America. Just not a phrase you hear often. I think it means in terms of hydro rates or electricity rates. Even that, maybe I'm still a little skeptical about, but maybe it's not too bad here.
0: Well, certainly not compared to Ontario.
1: But yeah, ultimately, the BC Liberals argument here again was just, this is just another broken promise that we didn't make. And they did, but couldn't follow through on it. And it's still not a strong landing criticism, as far as I can tell.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the NDP do look a little foolish by promising something that the independent experts say, yeah, no, that's a really bad idea. And we're not going to sign off on that. But at the same time, it does give them a little shelter in that the actual decision is now the responsibility of the BCUC rather than the NDP themselves.
1: And the last quick thing I want to squeeze in on following up on last week's budget segment as a little peek behind the Politicos production curtains, I go through and edit these shows in the morning after Friday morning. I edit through the episode and I come up with a title for the episode, which is either based on one of the segments. And I throw a thumbnail on the episode, sometimes hastily photoshopped, sometimes just taken from the internet. And because we were talking about the budget, we had named it Baby's First Budget because the emphasis of the budget was on childcare. It was the NDP's first budget. And I had initially pitched the idea of Baby Steps to Socialism, but you shot that idea down. (laughs) It's fine. We try to work on a consensus on our bad naming jokes. But when I put the image on there, I pulled one from the budget announcement, which was Carol James speaking, and people pointed out pretty quickly on Twitter, it looked like we were trying to demean her. And I just want to be perfectly clear, we weren't trying to demean her as a woman in politics or her capabilities as a finance minister. We were trying to make a bad joke and it didn't (laughs) land. So I'm sorry. I changed the image to a thumbnail that just showed the childcare thing from the budget and reached out to the couple people and thanked them for their input. And if we ever fuck up like that again, it's probably my fault. Just tell me and I'll fix it.
0: Moving on to segment two, a double plus good budget. Federal government put out their budget this past Tuesday, and it was pitched as the first feminist budget, a bit of a different tack than the liberals' last two budgets. Uh, although the middle class to get at least second billing in the subtitle of the budget
1: The headline was Equality Plus Growth, and there's lots in here, and we could spend this entire segment just reading the highlights that I copied in from a very helpful Toronto Star article, which of course will be in the show notes. But the big takeaway for me was this emphasis on gender-based analysis plus, which the government's been using for a couple of years. It was actually first introduced in 96, and I'll get into what it is in a second, And the other half was science and innovation, and finally starting to fulfill the Naylor report, which I think we talked about last year at some point. When I was in Ottawa and I was talking with the people at Evidence for Democracy, the big approach this tries to really pump up and takes, I mentioned, is called Gender-Based Analysis Plus. And this is this analytical tool where you don't just look at gender, the plus is all aspects of biological and sex and social, cultural, gender, as well as other identities. So race, religion, age, et cetera, and physical disability. And it applies to basically every policy the government has been bringing out. And what they do is they look at this policy and say, could this differentially affect men and women or trans people, et cetera. It brings some experts in to try to just actually think about these, look at the evidence. Because sometimes policies have unintended consequences, and it's a good way to at least just start to ask these questions and make sure that we are working towards a more equal society where people can take part in the economy if that's what they want to do, because that's the approach this budget's taken. So the big headline about this are changes to pay equity legislation, meaning the government's taking active steps to try to close the wage gap. In Canada, they cite in the budget that the wage gap is still women are only making 87 cents to the dollar that a man is making. And that's even lower for women of color, indigenous women, women with disabilities, etc. And the other part of that element is this $1.2 billion over five years that they're putting towards changes to employment insurance for parental leave. So they're topping up, I think it's a five extra weeks, use it or lose it, that either parent can take. And it's gender neutral. So it's actually the dad can take those off or the wife or if it's two men or whatever family situation you're in. And I think you can have this total of 40 weeks and you can split it however you want. And the goal there is to say it's based on something Quebec has done to really encourage either parent to take the time off if they want in an equal fashion. And it actually has changed the burden, which was usually... The mother was always taking time off, and that sets her earning potential over her life down. Because if you're getting regular pay increases and then you take six months or a year off to help raise your baby, then you're six months to a year behind a male counterpart who didn't. So this sort of evens the workload, accounts for some of the a lot of the hidden work being done by women in homes that hasn't really been recognized by society. And it's a good sort of evidence-based step. Now, is it big enough? I'm not sure. I'm not the expert on this. Maybe we'll get Kevin Milligan, who's actually done some research on this exact kind of stuff and childcare stuff. But I think it's a positive step. So that analysis spins throughout the rest of the budget. So they throw lots of money, like I said, at fundamental science and research in Canada, like $3.2 billion over five years for Canada research chairs and building up big data and supporting granting councils. And there's $2.6 billion over five years to promote scientific innovation, but also gender equality. So they're tying this gender-based approach to everything. And so we're putting more money into science, but we're also making sure women get more of a chance to succeed in science. Because if anything, the Me Too movement has shown us recently that there's still a lot of sexual harassment in science and general underrepresentation. Like you did an engineering degree, I did an engineering degree. They weren't very women-friendly disciplines.
0: I did an engineering degree at RMC, so that's two hits against (laughs) it. Yeah, it was not a diverse classroom.
1: So these are steps to try to rectify the imbalance and at least promote greater involvement, and I'm excited to see that. The bottom line number of the budget is that there is still a deficit of $18.1 billion, and that deficit gets smaller for the next few years, but there's no balance Date in the future, so the conservatives are still scared and angry.
0: Yeah, like this is one of those broken promises where Trudeau was pretty clear in the campaign that it was going to be ten billion. There's going to be four years of that, and that was going to be it. And well, we're at eighteen billion now with no end in sight. So it does it does decrease
1: to twelve billion dollars in twenty (laughs) twenty two. The big focus the liberals have been talking about is debt to GDP ratio, and
0: which is you know a better metric.
1: And they are, I think, still in a good area for that. They might it's be still trailing. declining. To the...
0: It's declining still because the deficit is smaller than the GDP growth.
1: So economists won't chastise them to no end, and hopefully, we won't have to be dealing with debt ceiling or debt wall talks because those are monotonous and exhausting
0: yeah and even the economists aren't too concerned about that i saw kevin milligan on twitter basically saying yeah calm down people like this is not the 90s they're still running deficits and bigger deficits in the 2020s yeah maybe we'll start to get a little concern there but that's a gdp is kind in mean, the mid 30 percent so it's not a huge concern at this moment but it you know something to keep an eye on because it does constrain us going forward if you know, that
1: number gets too big. So filling out the big ticket items in this budget, there's $1.4 billion set aside over six years to support indigenous children, both in foster care and promote family reunification and a bunch of other money set aside to reconciliation. Trudeau's finally starting to talk about how they will end the boil water advisories on every reserve and are putting money to finally do that because it's shameful that we live in a country where people can't drink the water.
0: Yeah, this is not new technology either. The fact that stayed in this lawn to even get the money to go forward is...
1: It's the easiest thing to solve. Like there are intractable problems. And then there's one where you just have to buy some filters. It's a little more complicated little than more that, complicated. but its it's literally solvable by just throwing money at it. Yeah, like hire
0: some engineers, hire some contractors. Yeah, it's a question of writing the RFPs, getting them out there, taking the bid and just, you know, doing that. It's something that the government is actually pretty good at and there's really no excuse for not having done that.
1: They're also putting aside 2 billion dollars over 5 years for foreign aid, and this is the feminist foreign aid program of the Trudeau Liberals because everything has that tinge Progressive feminism. And this does a lot towards that, this budget as a whole, I think. There are still going to be calls that, you know, the childcare spaces they open. I think I saw one analysis say they're looking to open 70,000 childcare spaces, but we need something like 700,000 to really make up the number of people who can't find affordable childcare in this country. But you got to start somewhere, I guess. So it's a very liberal budget in that it'll say a lot of the right things put some money into the right spaces, but still disappoint a lot of progressives.
0: What I actually think is more notable in the budget is what wasn't in it. So if you recall, the Liberals made a big deal a couple years back about infrastructure spending. And in fact, that was kind of the whole raison d'etre of the deficit was, no, we need to invest in infrastructure to kickstart the economy. That was the pitch. Well, if you dig into the budget, and I mean dig into it because it's hidden in an annot somewhere, that's actually pushing a lot of that infrastructure spending into the future. And, you know, it's so they're shortchanging by over a billion dollars this year, less and, you know, other years going forward. And then. It all balances out in the end under this column that's just future investments. That's not, it doesn't even have a date assigned to it. It trails off after 2022, but you know that shortfall is made up then. So that's a little concerning, especially because we have some significant infrastructure problems and needs. Take Vancouver for example. You know, suresell needs a few new uh, rapid transit lines that we're kind of, sort of get in around to building whenever they finally break ground on the Broadway line. And even that's only going halfway to where it needs to go.
1: Well, and those were things Trudeau campaigned on and talked about in this city during the election. So disappointing there. It's in a way similar to this other promise that got a lot of press initially, was this advisory council on the implementation of National Pharmacare. And they scored big when Ontario Health Minister Eric Hoskins resigned from his duties in Queen's Park to join this because he's going to head this up. And they're like, oh, great. The liberals just stole the plan for universal pharmacare from the NDP's future platform, and they're going to do it first. But then it turns out this liberal pharmacare is actually more like kind of care. It's a partial pharma. It's cheap drugs or free drugs for low-income people. Maybe if a task force suggests it, I don't know, maybe in 2019, because something else happens that year when the Liberals (laughs) might want to get some positive attention. Gee,
0: what could they be looking at in
1: 2019? Yeah, I don't know. My other favorite part of this budget is how they admit that they should scrap the Phoenix Pay system, which is still fumbling public servants' pays. In some cases, people are getting paid too much and then having it clawed back or in other cases, are not getting paid, which is such a disastrous scandal. The government has at least, like, one of its core jobs is to pay the people it employs. That's, if Bombardier wasn't paying its people, (laughs) we'd be hearing about it daily until the government, like, shut them down.
0: Well, actually, knowing the government, they'd probably start, you know, covering it off until Bombardier can get their shit together. Yeah,
1: they'd at least figure out how to pay the employees for them, but, you know, any company... In this country if they were having this level of disarray would be facing severe sanctions but because it's the federal government they're above the law because they are the law they've sunk something like 500 million dollars into this already they're budgeting another 430 million dollars over six years to fix the current pay problems there's also been some memos recently discovered about how they could have known about this because this is the same system that i think australia adopted a few years ago and then abandoned very quickly when it turned out it's terrible and doesn't work. But They
0: seem to be buying a lot of secondhand stuff from the Australians these days.
1: So there's that ongoing story. The other story that sort of keeps coming back is this budget implements the income sprinkling, passive investment income, and small business tax rates that I think were being initially rolled out last fall and were hyper-controversial and now everyone's just kind of given up on debating them i guess cuz i haven't i just like noticed it in a footnote i was like oh yeah I remember i remember that story the conservatives were screaming bloody murder every day for 6 weeks and now it's just yeah, yeah they're just doing it the conservatives lost the fight on it and the only other thing that really struck my eye in there there's a lot of other little things but is they're putting some more money and finally filling in this how do we fix journalism in this country one of the trudeau government footnote promises was this idea that, well, the reality is newspapers in this country, notably Post Media are dying a painful and slow death as investors bleed it dry. And local journalism is evaporating as media outlets can't afford to hire them because people are expensive to employ and no one is paying for journalism except our lovely patrons. But we're not journalists, we're commentators and recyclers. So the federal government is putting $172 million over five years to this Canada Media Fund to foster the growth of Canadian-produced content and $50 million over five years to support local journalism in underserved communities. There had been some suggestion in advance in some previous reports that the government might bail out Post Media and some of these big newspaper chains and people like Jesse Brown on Canada Land were super offended by this idea and me personally because post media is garbage and kind of does need to die but I don't want the people all the people who work there to lose their job I mean some of the columnists are terrible but well, yeah, and some pretty great columnists We can keep too. Andrew Coyne around he's entertaining at times and so this bailout isn't really a bailout it's a tiny amount of money that won't save post media but maybe it will help support some local journalism and there's a bit of interesting changes in there about talking about reforming structure of journalism to allow charitable journalism to happen in this country. Because I don't know if I've done a rant on this show yet about how terrible our charitable law is, because we don't have one. We rely on 19th century case law from England, which means for it's this is serious. This comes out of the Pemsel case out of the House of Lords. And the categories of charities, they use come from the magna fucking carta <laughs> so it makes no sense every other democracy in the world has a charities law and canada relies on this garbage old precedent <laughs> but the liberals have promised to reform that partially because of the political advocacy stuff but here they want to expand it and give a charitable status to journalistic institutions because the us has some great examples of nonprofits that are doing investigative journalism or Some of the models being talked about are maybe your local newspaper spins off a foundation that supports investigative journalism in that area. So I heard an example used like the Winnipeg Free Press, a town that's got a medium market, but isn't Vancouver or Toronto where they can really support a daily newspaper. But you could maybe get some money thrown at it with some tax receipts and make it work. it's just a good idea. Of course, it upsets me because I need to see broader (laughs) charities reform that they have promised and haven't done yet. Also, the liberals are going to try to fix the softwood lumber industry with $191 million over five years. But anyway, those were my highlights from the budget. Anything else catch your eye?
0: Yeah, well, circling back to the stuff that's notable for what's not in there, defense, which is our largest single department by its expenditure, doesn't really get mentioned, which is interesting because... We're, in theory, buying a lot of new equipment that we need, or at least has been promised. No, we're not. Yes. (laughs) Well, hence the in theory. Or at least promised it maybe after the next election. We'll see. So, yeah, our largest department doesn't really get any mention, despite some fairly significant ongoing operational and capital expenditures. Yeah, other than... Spending five hundred million over the next five years on cybersecurity, there just you know isn't a whole lot in there around defense, which is a very interesting omission.
1: I think the reality is defense doesn't move votes and doesn't really fit with the Trudeau image. What does he got to win by?
0: Well, it should at least get mentioned somewhere in there, and this is the things we're doing. I mean, even important policy areas should at least get a mention in the budget on what's happening with it, even if it isn't like a hot highlighter or anything. In theory, the budget is the thing we're you know, just what we're supposed to be spending money on this year, not the hey, look at how great we are about all of these policies we're putting in place, which is you know, what it's turned into, but I would like to see it go back more to a know this is actually what we're taking in what we're putting out and here are some policy tweaks we're making as well
1: so the budget throws a bunch of money in a bunch of places i saw some people trying to describe it as like a grab bag of things where you could talk about the bc budget for example in terms of housing and childcare, two big things they hit out of the park the federal budget i think the main thing here that i saw at least in it was this gender-based analysis and science spending there is lots of other big spending in here And that's why some people, I think, got overwhelmed, because if you're the federal government, you can't just focus on two things really well, because you have a whole country to run. But I think this is not a bad budget for the Trudeau liberals to drop on their third year of their first term. There are places where the conservatives will say the deficit's too high, and the NDP is going to be frustrated that things don't go far enough, or are pretty much all pitched to be election platforms that they're going to have to run against next time. But realistically, it's probably a politically smart budget. Moving into our quick takes, the BC government rolled out its consultation on how it's going to manage oil spill regulations and adjust them to be more strict. This is largely seen as part of the strategy to restrict Kinder Morgan's pipeline expansion, but George Heyman, the Environment Minister, confidently reassures us that this is about all spills, including some random one that happened in the north at one time, and would apply to both pipelines and also rail traffic and any other way we ship oil across the province. So the top line items of this proposal are that if a spill happened near a populated area, the company responsible would have two hours to start analyzing and doing a cleanup. If it's in the middle of buttfuck nowhere, they'd have four hours. There's another proposal around making sure there are enhanced response plans for geographically sensitive areas. So if your oil pipeline goes near salmon streams or freshwater sources, you need to be able to say what you will do to protect those sensitive spaces. There's another part that goes into how do we compensate the victims of an oil spill if it happens, how much money essentially should we force Kinder Morgan to pay out when it happens, if it happens. And another section that gets into what kind of tools does the provincial government have in its regulatory pocket for marine response, because most of the fisheries and oceans jurisdiction lands in the federal government's lap. But the provincial government wants the ability to step on that ground. What's not in here is, I think, the most poignant piece, which is any mention of bans on increasing diluted bitumen shipments through the province until more science on what a spill would mean in freshwater, <laughs> because that's what John Horgan has referred to the B.C. Supreme Court or will be referring So this is a policy proposal. It's on the government's engagement website, and we'll throw a link in the show notes. It'll be up there for 60 days, as starting from February 28th, I think. And they're also gonna be doing targeted engagements with industry, First Nations, and communities around the province. And they're aiming to get regulations ready for cabinet by 2019.
0: So the block this week reminded everyone that, yeah, they're actually still around, or at least are right now but might not be much longer, as 7 of the 10 block MPs quit saying they had no confidence in Martinolette, who is the current leader, although not an MP and actually just still chilling out in the uh, National Assembly in Tibet City.
1: Everything about this story is hilarious. And it's another successive week in Canadian politics of which province is going to be the silliest. We had Ontario's couple weeks there. Month one eruption that still isn't over yet. We had a couple dumb trade wars involving Alberta. And now we have 70% of the party's MPs quitting, because they basically thought, well, that was too tyrannical. And these aren't just the fringe MPs. These are like the bloc stalwarts. So one of the people in there is Louis Plamondon, who was elected in 1984, before either of us were born, and he has been with the bloc ébecois for 25 years, and he's just like, no, I'm done with this party now. Another was Rio Fortin, who was a past interim leader. Fortin's quote about Ouellet is awesome, because he says, Ouellet would like us to talk and talk about sovereignty, about independence of Quebec, I will say in every and all sentences, we believe that we have to make the real promotion by explaining why Quebec should be independent. What's the problem with the actual constitution with the government and that system? Basically, what Let's Approach was the bloc isn't separatist enough. And her argument for staying in the Quebec legislature was that she wanted like a foot in both doors. I think it was basically, she's so separatist, she doesn't believe in Canada. So sitting in parliament would be like an affront to her, but she's happy to have 10 minions, well, three now. <laughs> it kind of makes you wonder why did she become leader? If it's and there's this great anecdote as well in the CBC article about how last June she faced a separate leadership challenge after there were reports that her chief of staff, well chief of staff, her main right hand person, allegedly leaked information to try to throw one of her MPs under the bus. It's just a great feeling in that party, right? That's how you have a good culture. So Let won the leadership for the Bloc Québécois in March 2017, just over a year ago. Great first year. By default, by acclamation, she was the only candidate. And this was after twice coming third, I read, in the party Québécois leadership races. You know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, and maybe...
0: That's kind of the separatist motto, isn't it?
1: And apparently get more strident... <laughs> and to, to the point where your own separatists think you're too separatist <laughs> so they separate
0: <laughs> so everyone's had a good uh round of laughter at this i think the Beaverton ran with it saying that the uh block the separating block mps are still going to be using the blocks military and currency going forward
1: this does if the seven mps form a party which is likely there was a strength and democracy party, I think, before the last election, which was two or three MPs who'd split off from the bloc a previous time. (laughs) They've not had a good run since the NDP destroyed them in 2011. They actually came back from four MPs to 10 in this last election in 2015, and now they're down to three. And so the seven MPs could form the fourth largest party, the bloc would be the fifth, and Elizabeth May is now down to the sixth place party of one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the block has uh, sure fallen since the time they were official opposition.
1: Well, just think about the last time you heard about the Bloc Québécois. Well, yeah, Canadian that's why politics. I joked
0: that at the start. Like, this whole thing just reminded people that the block exists because they basically haven't been relevant for one and a half election cycles now.
1: I shared this story in some places saying, I bet you can't name the leader of the Bloc Québécois without clicking through. <laughs> yeah, and maybe would- that's an English media bias. But, Probably a
0: bit of it, but, you know, the the Gen Z that's coming up behind us, they're, uh, this has, that's an entire generation that will just not really know what the block is or understand its relevance. If they, You know, they haven't studied Canadian political
1: history. Well, if that story was silly, this next one we put in because we've never seen anything quite as ridiculous. A woman in Nanaimo is facing a $100 a day fine... Because she has rabbits. And it turns out there's this weird bylaw in just in the city of Nanaimo. Nowhere else, as far as CBC could tell, has a similar bylaw, at least on Vancouver Island, where you are not allowed to have a rabbit if your property is less than one acre. And the rationale there was this would somehow prevent people from having rabbits and then like letting them loose and becoming feral rabbits, because that is a major problem in the city of Victoria and some places on the island. But this woman has had rabbits for six years, just like a couple that she breeds at home. One of her great neighbors filed an anonymous complaint. And then by law, animal enforcement officers came and told her that she's facing this fine. And so she appealed the city. It turns out what makes this story even better is Nanaimo allows people with those small houses and properties to have chickens. So you can have chickens, but not rabbits on your property. Morissette, the person in question, points out that it doesn't actually make any sense because people with an acre of land aren't necessarily more responsible than anyone else's pet owners. And even the local SPCA says this is a dumb bylaw <laughs> because it just encourages people who have rabbits to ditch them if they get caught. And that makes more <laughs> feral rabbits, which is the problem it was trying to solve. And one person even points out, we don't have a rampant feral chicken problem.
0: That's, that would be uh, the, Nanaimo's acting director of public safety.
1: <laughs> so I think this takes the cake as one of the silliest enforced bylaws in the province, at least for the week. Hopefully, Morissette is successful at Nanaimo City Council and we will get this struck down. We also know there have been a string of other really weird stories out of Nanaimo that we've have been on our periphery. municipal politics can be so hard to get into that we're going to try and find someone to break it down because there are weird stories about corruption in that city hall that you know you just can't access if you're not there understanding what's going on so if you're sure
0: it's amazing but yeah it gets a little inside baseball for for you know two outsiders to talk about
1: if you're a listener who lives in nanaimo and gets it or knows what's going on and wants to come on the show shoot us an email and we'll talk two cats who live and play with the sheep. Uh, Their farm cats are actually about the same age as my two city cats, but they're twice the size and about 10 times as tough. Their cats actually sleep, by the way. Their cats sleep with the sheep during the winter outside and they actually ride the sheep out to pasture. It is the most adorable thing. I know. Skeptical looks coming from the other side. they are actually photos of their sheep, of their cats perched on top of the sheep riding out to pasture. And closing off with this week's Best of BC Polly. I think one of the most popular tweets this week came after Bowen Ma was in the legislature, and you just heard the clip of her talking about cats. And People were sort of asking her about what's her deal with cats all week, and so she tweeted finally, and you can find her at Beau and Ma. someone joked that I might be in the running for the MLA who has talked the most about cats in the chamber this term, but how could I not? Look, this BC farm cat hitches a ride on its sheep friend out to pasture in the morning. Support BC agriculture, hashtag buy BC, hashtag feed BC, hashtag grow BC, hashtag BC poly. And she has a picture of a brown sheaf with this adorable white cat sitting on its back, and you can't help but go, Aw. And so, this is just an endearing, heartwarming tweet, in my honest. It's not particularly hilarious, but.
0: And I disregarded River Credit for never drove off message with the uh, end bit of that tweet there. <laughs> um, next up, Craig Van Deveen had some thoughts on the fuel spill from HMCS Calgary that happened. This week, just off uh, Vancouver Island, and he tweeted, Unfortunate name for that ship spill. Why couldn't it have been HMCS Vancouver that spilled? I'm sure BCans will find a way to pin this on Alberta. You can find him at trade underscore VDV.
1: And finally, just as we were starting to record, I saw Shannon Waters at so so bitter sweet tweet at us. One of the things said in the legislature this week by at Kylo Gregg. He, I guess, was asking a question about tax competitiveness and said, trying to explain tax competitiveness to the members opposite is like trying to explain thunder to goats. They're not allowed to use silly names and fake ministerial titles anymore, but they can still be creative. And I appreciate that. So good work, Kylo Gregg. Everyone else can make sure to nominate tweets for next week's show, or if you happen to be listening to Question Period and find some good quips, tweet those at us, and we'll throw those in as well. Use the hashtag, hashtag bestofbcpoly. And that has been
0: Politicoast. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politicoast.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you ever listen to podcasts, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show, and get early access to our interviews at patreon.com bloodcoast. And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.
1: And if apologies offend you, fuck off.